everyone. This is Mike Epstein, and welcome to the 30th episode of Speaking of the Arts. Today's guest is Jacob Yaffe. Jacob came to my attention from Jordan Passman, who was featured in episode 29. If you've never heard of Jacob, believe me, you will soon. Jacob is currently the resident composer for the American Studio Orchestra and is a full-time concert and film composer based in Los Angeles. As a a feature film composer, Jacob has scored over 20 feature-length projects and has worked in drama, action, comedy, animation, and horror. Jacob's music has been featured in the trailer campaigns for Star Wars, The Force Awakens, The Jungle Book, The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smog, The Chronicles of Riddick, and Kubo and the Two Strings. He is known for his work on MTV's hit drama Finding Carter and Showtime's award-winning Time of Death series. Currently, Jacob is scoring Andy Mack, a new series for Disney, and he is also working on the ad campaigns for Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, and Pirates of the Caribbean 5. Jacob's concert music has been performed in several cities in the U.S., as well as abroad, at the Huddersfield Contemporary Music Festival, the Royal Academy of Music, and on BBC Radio. As a performer, Jacob was signed to Inner Circle Music Records in 2007, releasing his debut album, Dead Reckoning. Jacob holds degrees from the Peabody Conservatory of Music and Composition and Jazz Performance and a master's degree from New York University. Jacob, thanks so much for being here. This is great. Thanks for having me. Yes. Well, as I mentioned, you were recommended to me by Jordan Passman, and I've since really been impressed with your background, the sheer amount of work you've managed to accomplish in a relatively short amount of time and a lot of the projects you're involved in. And I want to talk about all of this in our conversation today. Why don't we start with some of the basics, though? Um, what, tell, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from originally? I am from North Carolina. My father is a U.S. Marine and my mother is a school teacher. And I was sort of a, a weirdo in the family, the only one that was interested in music. And um, it's, uh, I joke that it was sort of uh, a gift and a curse, and I think anyone who is in the music industry could agree that uh, you should only do it if you can't do anything else. Um, but it, it sort of gives you sort of a passion that keeps you moving forward, and it definitely kept me busy as a kid moving around um, every two years in the military. And uh didn't matter if uh, we were living in the South or abroad or North Carolina or California. Um, music always sort of kept me going, kept me um, searching for new things, um, learning how to play all the different instruments I can get my hands on, stuff like that. Yes, I would say it's definitely a lifelong pursuit. When What are some of your earliest musical memories as a child moving around? And I think specifically I'm wondering... Do you recall when music first had a really profound effect on you? I mean, is there anything you can kind of pinpoint as a child? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, as funny as it may sound, uh, for Marie, there was two moments. Number, the first one was uh, the first time I heard Michael Jackson. Um, it it just blew me away. I heard the Thriller album, and I just was like, "What is that?" I mean, it just I had to. I begged my mom to buy me the cassette. That's what it, everything was on back then. Um, and just devoured everything that uh, Michael Jackson released um, and was convinced that I just had to do music any way I could. Um, 
and then I got an interest in film music. You know, a lot of film composers you talk to, I think the knee-jerk uh, response you'll get is, oh, when I watched Star Wars for the first time, John Williams' music just blew me away. I think I was a little different. I was actually watching Gremlins, and uh, I remember looking at my mom, and I was like, I really like the music. I think I could do this for a living. That's, that's what I want to do. Um, <laughs> how, old, so, how old would you have been at that point? I was eight. Yeah, uh, and I just I just was floored. Of course, I, I've grown to uh, to just fall in love with John Williams' music as well. Uh, and Star Wars definitely is a powerhouse that cannot be ignored. Uh, but you have Gremlins and Michael Jackson would be my two big music, uh, I guess, experiences. That's awesome. And so along those lines, who? And this is probably a tough question to answer, but. Who, who would you say are some of your biggest musical influences, or you know, if you had to pick five, three, four, or five? I mean, who really comes to mind? You mentioned Michael Jackson, but as you've gotten experience in the industry, who do you find yourself turning to? Um, well, there's a, I sort of have like a um, a dual uh, career going, um, working in the realm of you know composing, orchestral, um, hybrid rock, pop, whatever you call it, but also, but also jazz. Um, and in an orchestral sense, um, I'm very inspired and influenced by Elliot Goldenthal, uh, who is a um, well-regarded you know, film composer, but also a concert composer in his own right. Um, and you may have heard his music in uh, the film Interview with the Vampire, uh, which is considered his magnum opus. And uh, I had that... Um, on CD when I was in high school, and I just I just ran that thing on the loop. Um, and then in college, when I went to the Peabody Conservatory, um, I, it was the first time I'd really been exposed to jazz, and I heard the music of Gary Thomas, who, you know, in the realm of modern jazz, people will know who he is, but um, it's definitely not like a household name. And he's, he's a saxophone player that uh, toured with Miles Davis and, uh, of course, has played with everybody under the sun, Herbie Hancock, Wynton, uh, Wayne Shorter, all that stuff. Um, and his music really inspired me, uh, both as a composer and an improviser. And I would say both L.A. Goldenthal and Gary Thomas are sort of like on the fringe. They are, they are sort of outside the mainstream, you know, kind of create their own language. Uh, which is extremely inspiring artistically, uh, but also just as craftsmen within the, the world of music, they're just at such a high level of functionality that they're inspiring um, just as practitioners, uh, in addition to just being like, oh, wow, I really love their music. But just the ease with which they seem to work in the industry is, is very inspiring. So those those would be the two. Um, I mean, there's a the host of others, but I'd say those are my two strongest influences. I'm going to skip around in some of the questions I've got for you because I think this could be a good time to ask. How would you say your your background and your experiences as a performer influence your composing? Do you approach it differently with that that mindset, or do you sort of put on a different hat, or what, how do you deal with that situation? The performing uh, experience I've had has been integral to uh, success in the film music industry. Um, when when I was at conservatory studying composition, you know it's common. You know your your 
professor or you have like a recital that you're preparing for and um, you start writing a piece, you might have a few weeks, you might have a few months to work on a piece. Uh, so you sort of get in the habit of, you know, the sort of the masterpiece mentality when you're composing and you're, you want to create this perfect artistic, you know, presentation to the world. But in film music, I mean, you'll have 30 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour, you know, a day maybe to work on a, a piece of music. Uh, sometimes you get to do more revisions. Um, so the performance uh, in jazz had really gave me that experience of like, okay, you're on the stage, you're on the bandstand, it's go time, it's your turn to solo, you have to produce music instantly. You have to be ready to just, okay, it's a four-hour gig, we've got three and a half sets of music we have to just provide right now. And so there's like this very, um, I guess, uh, fast turnaround that happens for jazz players um, every day. And you just get used to producing music quickly. And uh, there's like a certain level of quality that you get accustomed to when you're, you know, gigging with professionals. And uh, that sort of mentality carried with me into the film um, music world so that if I have to, you know, for my TV show, sometimes I'll have to write 10, 15 cues in a day, uh, which, you know, I, I do often have to work 16 to 18 hour days, but that's, you know, if you average it out, it's about an hour for each piece of music. Uh, so to produce a final copy of a piece of music in an hour, you are really flying. Uh, so a lot of, like, you know, my mental... Um, abilities from improvising, playing keyboard, saxophone, whatever, just, you know, thinking about, like, song form structures and chord progressions and all that kind of stuff is extremely useful. So I always recommend, like, for younger composers, like, if you can get any performance experience, study jazz, study rock, uh, whatever you can, outside of orchestral composition, because it will be useful beyond belief. Yeah, it almost sounds like it gave you a real strong sense of discipline, especially when you describe the time constraints. And I don't think most people are, I mean, myself included, I don't think most people are aware of sort of the project management side of things when it comes to scoring a, uh, uh, music for film. And I was surprised when you said you, the amount of time you actually have to do that is it completely depends project to project. Has that been your experience generally? Absolutely. There's no... There's no standard, um, and it's always it's always a crisis. It's always you know not enough time to complete the task. So um, I was just talking with uh, one of my professors from NYU, uh, film composer, and uh, his, he had this phrase: uh, "The ceiling becomes the floor." And I thought that was very appropriate. You know, it's like you know whenever I think I've written the most music in the shortest amount of time, you know, a month later I've got to top that. Uh, and it's just sort of like, okay, just I, I don't really get too stressed out anymore because I just expect it to be insanity. Um, and, I, and I honestly enjoy it. I enjoy the challenge. I love it. And it, it brings out, you know, um, musical styles that I didn't know were in me. So it's not a bad thing, I, I think. When did you graduate from school? In other words, when you had when you moved out to LA, when when were you officially done with your uh, I guess your master's degree in this case? Uh, 2010, uh, spring semester that year, I finished, got married over the summer, and then moved to uh, LA at the end of September. 
2010. Well, and what would what would you say are maybe two or three of the most important experiences or lessons that you had in college that really helped prepare you for your current work? Um, well, it was, it was interesting when I when I first went to NYU, there was a, a woman who taught there. Uh, she's actually the reason that I decided to enroll. Her name is uh, Denise Hughes, and she was an orchestrator on um, Elliot Goldenthal's score for Interview with the Vampire, uh, which, as I said earlier, was a huge influence on me when I was in high school. And I was just like, I have got to study with her. Um, so I enrolled, got in, um, joined her teaching studio, and... The first semester with her was like going through boot camp. It was intense. I mean, my first lesson, she, uh, I walked in, and she was just like, good Lord, you are such a jazz musician. We've got to take care of this. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she's like, do you understand the stress and the pressure that's going to be on a film composer? You are, like you mentioned earlier, a project manager. They're trusting you with large sums of money. They're trusting you with a huge project that's their baby. You need to be professional in a different sense. Um, so she really, um, I mean, it was it was a hard, hard lesson. That whole semester was really tough. It was like everything I was doing, she was like, you can't do it like that. You're doing it the opposite way that will be accepted in the film industry. Um, and the first thing she did was every week that semester, I had to write at least 10 minutes of music for her. Uh, which at the time, I was like, oh, my goodness, after write 10 minutes of music, like you hit the space bar and it lasts 10 minutes in the computer, like that's gargantuan. It was exhausting. Uh, well, now, you know, I'm writing 10 minutes a day often, you know. So it's uh, it was a great start. So that first semester was like ripping the Band-Aid off. Um, and I'd say after that, it didn't feel so intense, but it was uh, quite shocking. That's a great example of the ceiling becomes the floor. What, yeah. Uh, <laughs> when you, all right, so knowing what you know now, if you could change anything, and this is a loaded question, but I mean, if you could change anything about music education in the U.S. in general, I mean, what would it be and why? Um, <clears throat> I have a, a sort of a, an idea that I've been tossing around in my mind for the last few years. And it's this this concept of art versus craft. And um, I'm not sure that I can explain it uh, as well as I hope to someday. But the, the basic gist is uh, we have right now, uh, it seems that everybody wants to be an artist. Everybody wants to be, um, you know, have ultimate self-expression. And it's about, you know, I have these emotions in me. I want to get them out. I want to present them in a way it feels good for me to perform them and feels good to the listener, which is great, but the emphasis is on, you know, I want to be unique and, you know, it, it doesn't matter if I know the craft of music all that well. Uh, it just matters that I'm expressing myself. But to actually work in the music industry and make a living, you have to have the craft side of it down pat. That is a given. You have to you have to know the mechanics of music inside and out if you want to function well. Are there people who are able to make it to the top without knowing anything? Yes, um, but that doesn't mean that it's to be done or be desired. Or you know, I think it's a lot um, easier to make a living if you understand 
um, you know, music theory, if you know how to play instruments, if you know how to use all the equipment in a recording studio, uh, if you just know how to work with people as a manager, if you know how to work with musicians and speak their language. Um, I see people who are gifted who struggle a lot because they don't know how to do um, basic things that they haven't been taught. And I think it's not because they wouldn't have done it, it's just that it wasn't on their sort of mental agenda um, as a music artist because they were so focused on self-expression. Does that make any sense at all? I've never actually explained this to another person before. Oh, it definitely makes sense. I'm particularly curious to hear your thoughts on these issues because, I mean, I didn't graduate that much before you did. I was 06, and I went to Indiana University to their music program and really learned a lot. And, you know, I'm grateful for the experiences I had there. And I never... I don't think at the time I ever really thought I would try to work on the business side of the table. And it just, you know, a series of circumstances led me to ultimately becoming an agent. Um, And I think back to my time at school in class and in in the studio and the whole deal and just, you know, think about this a lot. Like what, what was worth it and what did I take from it and what could be different? And I don't know, I think there's a lot to be said for these programs were founded in the 60s maybe, especially jazz programs, and mm-hmm. they've certainly evolved since then, and you got to give these programs some credit, but at the same time, I think a lot of them haven't done enough to, to really change the way they prepare students for the real world, and it's such a unique position to be in because... I, I really feel strongly that the the music student, right, is in this unique position to both be in school but also, as best as possible, get real-world experience, whether that's already gigging or recording or whatever. It's it, more so than other disciplines. I really feel like that opportunity is there. So I would like to see more real world integrated with the classroom as best as possible. And I'm sure there are programs that are doing that. But in my when I think back about it, I, I wish there had been more opportunity like that. Absolutely. I think um, colleges are starting to um, think that way. I, I have a friend who graduated NYU uh, who is working in the industry, but he's, he's really building a career in academia as a, as a teacher. Um, uh, for specifically, you know, specifically for film music, and uh, he's taught courses at CSUN in LA. And uh, this semester, he was teaching at NYU, and he had me come in to speak at his class at CSUN and also at NYU this uh, this fall semester. Um, and it was this concept that he um, coined, like early career composers, with the idea that you have these college programs that they, they want to bring in, you know, heavyweights, they want to bring in big names in the industry, which is awesome and it attracts students and it, it sort of validates the program. It sort of uh, gives, you know, I don't know, like a student who isn't really cognizant of the players in an industry, they only recognize the biggest names. Uh, but those in the in jazz programs or in film composing programs, those are people who are at the ends of their career, who entered decades prior. So how much in, how much uh, real insight and uh, advice are they going to give 
you know, an 18 to 20, a 22, a 24-year-old entering the industry because they have no concept of how would you enter the industry now? Right. What should you do now? Yeah, and so he he invited me in just specifically to talk about, like, well, what what is it like right now? What is it like scoring a television show in 2016? What is it like working on trailers? What is it like scoring a, um, a feature film? You know, the budgets have changed. Uh, the deliverables have changed completely. Uh, you know, often now if you're going to work, you have to you have to be able to wear all the hats. Mm-hmm. When budget allows, then you can hire someone to work with you, but you really need to be able to deliver, you know, a 5.1 surround sound mix on your own with stems for a feature, you know, to the, to the dub stage. Um, on very low budget things, there won't be a mixer at all, so you've got to deliver directly to a picture editor so that they can mix it. It's Those are elements that, you know, someone who is winning Oscars uh, and is, you know, 60 years old, they probably haven't had to deal with stuff like that. Or maybe it, they have, it just hasn't been, it's been so long that they might not remember. Um, so I think that's a very good point, just like how, how does a music school keep up with the times? Because things are changing dramatically month to month. Yeah, it's, and it's tough. It's not a static thing by any means. It's very dynamic. And, and even people, you know, myself included, I'm figuring it out on a daily basis. <laughs> it changes every day. Yeah. So you can't yeah. always, you, you have to have a very adaptable, a very adaptable game plan. Um, well, we could talk about <laughs> the state of music education forever. So let's kind of get back <laughs> on track with your, how you're doing. So, so tell me the story of how you went from college to Los Angeles. Did you know anyone there who was doing film scoring that was able to help you navigate the scene? I did not know anybody, um, and I just I just wanted to jump in the fire. Uh, I just knew that I, I loved it. Um, I wanted to do it, and it was really by um, an amazing happenstance coincidence that I got um, my first sort of studio industry gig. Uh, I was on a jazz label in New York run by... Um, an alum from the Blue Note Records catalog, Greg Osby. Um, he started uh, his label, Inner Circle Music, I think in 07. I released um, my first album in 08. And, yeah, I mean, he, he's, he's close with all the artists on his label, and he knew that I was um, really active in film music and composing, and he knew that I was moving to L.A. His wife um, is multi-talented, does several different things. She just so happened to be uh, doing the accounting for a Weinstein Company film um, that fall after I graduated, and they were looking for a composer. And the the thing was, they were like, we're looking for a composer, sort of a different sound, not an L.A. sound, uh, more of a jazz sound, which was code for we don't really have any money, it's going to be low-paying, you know, Uh <laughs> So anyway, um, she asked her husband, do you have anyone on your record label that would do this? And he said, Paul Jacobs, he's a composer, he's great. So they they emailed me and uh, said, give us a call, and that's the conversation that I mentioned to you earlier. Um, I uh, They asked me, they said, hey, do you live in L.A.? You're based in L.A., right? I said, absolutely. Meanwhile, I was currently living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and uh, they said, all right, we're going to meet you at your studio next week. I put them off for two weeks, and in that time, Flew out to L.A., hit Craigslist, found an apartment, rented a studio, 
went back to Pittsburgh, threw everything in the car, drove cross country, set up shop so I could start on the stone with them. And uh, that film was um, uh, definitely ripping the Band-Aid off, uh, kind of shocking, uh, some growing pains, uh, but I finished it and um, through that um, started working with Jordan Passman. Uh, we signed an agent-composer agreement and uh, just been kind of hustling ever since. But that was definitely like the kind of first gig in L.A., Tell me about that that first experience. What what were the what was the criteria? And they had they heard any of your work, or how did that meeting go? Um, they had some of my work. I had, I had a website. Um, like I, at the time, I had two websites. I had a jazz uh, performance um, website that just featured um, my music as a saxophone player and jazz artist, and then a separate composer website um, with film music that I'd done uh, just as a demo that I'd written, you know, outside of a project of being hired and also just for student projects. Uh, so they, and I'd already been working with the American Studio Orchestra, so I had some performances up there um, of that uh, ensemble. And they had heard some of that, and they were confident that I could, you know, pull the gig off uh, based on that. And um, I think the only thing I had to do sort of as a demo was they needed me to write a music box theme uh, for the film that needed to be used for the opening title sequence. So I wrote that. They loved it. And then after that, they were confident that I could do the rest. Um, what, what was the movie? It was a Children of the Corn sequel. It's called Children of the Corn Genesis. Um, there have been so many sequels in that series, you wouldn't believe. Uh, this was just one. I don't even know. It was about the ninth or tenth one. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So... It was good though. I mean, it, it was it was a lot of fun, like I said, and um, the director was a, a real pleasure to work with. Um, and the post uh, mixing process uh, really sort of got me up to snuff as far as like delivering stems to the mix and going through that whole experience. It was it was definitely a good learning gig. What, what are stems for the mix for people who don't know? And I would include myself in that category. When you deliver to, um, well, stems are, are basically split out tracks. So, like, you know, when you listen to, you know, a jazz a pop song, it's a stereo file. And it's very uh, common, you know, in pop or, or any kind of music. When you bounce out the stereo file, you can run it through any kind of processing, a compressor, limiter, EQ, whatever, right on the master two-track out. And so it sort of is an easy way to clean up your mixing mistakes. You know, like if it's, oh, it's a little too dull, you brighten it up on the two-track out or whatever. Unfortunately, in film music, you can't really do that because they need stems. So if you, in your in your um, session, whatever doll you're working in, you'll have your strings, brass, winds, guitars, drums, bass, whatever it is, uh, and they need all that separate. And when they play them all back, it has to equal zero. So you can't be running it through compression on the stereo to track out. So your mixing has to be very, very clean. And that way, you bring that into um, a movie mix, and let's say the music is going along, and, not, and they're just like, oh, we can't hear the dialogue here because the strings are too loud. Rather than turning down all of the music, they'll just turn down only the strings just for that one word in the dialogue. Um, 
But if they had to turn all the music down, then you would actually hear the volume writing, which is not ideal. It happens, but it's not ideal. So the stems allow the, um, the re-recording mixer to really get like as punchy and energetic of a mix as possible. And are those, what, um, yeah, I'm fascinated by this because I don't have much experience with it at all. What, so what are like some of the industry standard tools that you're using when you're doing these types of projects? Um, it's, I mean, it's kind of like anything and everything you can get your hands on. Um, you know, as, as you work, I think every, uh, film composer, you sort of build your, your studio and your gear piece by piece. Um, I've, you of course need as powerful of a, uh, a computer to work with. Um, I myself can't stand working on laptops. There are a lot of people that do, um, but you, you definitely need a lot of RAM. Uh, I would say to function really at the level necessary, you need at least 64 gigs of RAM, and um, I don't know if laptops can get that much. Uh, I have a, you know, the new Mac Pro, the trash can looking thing. You've got to have a DAW, like a Logic, Pro Tools, Digital Performer, Cubase. I mean, there's a bevy of programs that people use. Uh, and then you need tons and tons of sample libraries, which are like, vir uh, if you don't know, are virtual instruments. So, like, you know, you're not going to have the budget to hire a string orchestra, but they're going to want strings, so you've got to have fake strings. And it seems like every day there's a new library that's released that's better than the last one, uh, and you want to keep up with the times. So you, you just research and buy the ones that you think you need for the gigs that you're getting hired for, and you sort of build your template, your sound, you know, um, and little by little it, you add stuff that sounds better and you lose the stuff that you don't like as much. Um, and then you sort of build your library of plugins and stuff just like a mixing engineer would, you know, compressors, EQs, um, reverbs, delays, tremulators. I mean, what, there's just a ton. Anything that, like, a mixing engineer would have, a film composer is going to have to start to develop a library of that because you are when it comes down to it, you are a music producer, not just a composer. They're not looking for you to hand them sheet music at the end. They want a finished track they can hit play. So, I mean, I don't know if that answers your question uh, very very well, but basically you need anything and everything you can get. Well, I think it's a good example, too, of when you were talking about this idea that people want to be an artist versus a craftsman. And mm -hmm. here you describe some of the tools and processes by which you go about doing your thing, certainly makes me think of you as the craftsman. Yes, exactly. It's like I, have, I feel like you have to wear different hats. Of course, they want, when someone hires me, they want an artistic presentation. They want it to have, you know, quality. And they, they're hiring a, a, a human to write a custom-created piece of music, and so they want it to be artistic. But in order to deliver that very quickly, you've got to be a craftsman because if, if you have this ma masterpiece mentality and someone says, hey, write me a piece of music that represents you as an artist. I mean, man, when someone asks you that, you're like, oh, all right, let me take 10 years to write that piece of music for you. <laughs> right. Um, let me take the next 90 years. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, you know, so having that mentality can be kind of like a handicap. Um, but I, I, I had someone in the industry who's a, um, a re-recording mixer tell me, he said, you can't think that way. You just have to do the best you can do with the time you're given. The reason they hire you over someone else is because when you only have 10 minutes, it's always this level of quality. 
and I thought, wow, that's that's really a great um, way to think about it. And another person uh, that was taught at NYU, he worked on all the Lord of the Rings films, and I asked him, I said, how did you guys maintain that level of quality over such a long amount of time? It must have been exhausting. And he said, oh, man, by the end, we were all running at like 50% capacity. He's like, we were just dragging our feet. And he's like, the trick is you hire people that when they're, when they're tired as hell and they can only give you half of what they can totally offer, that's still really, really good. And I was like, oh, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, that's a great image and something good to keep in mind for sure. Um, when, all right, so in thinking about the world of film composing and scoring, I'll ask some basic questions for you. Do you. Are you generally given visual aid? Is it just a script? Is it a description? How does that work? If, if you know, you're working on a project, does it depend? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it's... Uh, when you're actually doing the real gig, you will get the picture, um, unless it's trailers. Uh, I do a lot of a lot of trailer work, and um, most of the time there are exceptions, but most of the time they um, they can't give you the picture. It's too it's too um, too hot, like top secret. Uh, they're not allowed to send it out. Everyone's terrified of, like, stuff leaking online. So, like, when I worked on um, Star Wars, it was, uh, we weren't even allowed to talk. And, you know, the picture editor would be like, okay, there's a familiar character on screen. And then they say a uh, a very nostalgic line. And then uh, there's a familiar spaceship. And, you know, it's <laughs> like, okay, you know. And, and so are you're envisioning you, not interrupt, but are you composing original music for those scenes, or is that because everybody associates John Williams with Star Wars, so how does doing a trailer, how does that work? Uh, well, John Williams actually did some of the uh, the trailer music for the Star Wars campaign, which was just incredible. Uh, but all, you know, the majority uh, we're all just using his themes, and you're building okay. new tracks. Uh, so you might take... Um, you know, the the binary sunset melody and create a trailery track for it because, you know, trailer music it's it's a totally different language than, you know, uh, a feature score or television music or anything else. It's its own has its own pacing, its own sort of level of um intensity and um brevity. It's gotta move really fast. Yeah. Uh so so if you have these themes that um, need to take time, it's it's very difficult to sort of bend them and twist them in a way that works for, say, a 15-second spot for television, you know. Uh, so you really have to twist them. But you don't uh, – another reason that they don't give you the picture for those is because they um, – there may not be a picture yet. They're cutting them so fast they have to cut them with music. Um, but like I said, that's trailers. Everything else, like once you – get hired to score a feature, they're going to give you, you know, a QuickTime file to work with um, and use time code. Like when you're working on the TV show, you get a QuickTime and you work. And the picture may change, but they give you sort of like as close to a final cut as they have. You work with it in your um, DAW and um, send back, the, you know, a QuickTime for approvals until you bounce out the stems for the mix or 
you send it, you know, it's, it changes with every gig, but in general, you do get the picture to work with um, once you land the gig. There's a lot of demoing that happens, and you send reels, and you may just write a track based on reading a script or based on a brief. You get a brief, uh, you know, we're looking for music like such and such, and can you give us something that's like 90 seconds that sounds like this? Um, so you have to sort of go off whatever they'll give you. I see. It seems like the, there's a lot of pressure in these situations. What do you do if you get writer's block, or do you not get it? <laughs> yeah, writer's block, I'd say um, that's where the, the sort of the craftsman mentality has to enter. Um, I asked the same thing um, to Gary Thomas when I was studying with him, uh, you know, studying improvisation, and I said, you know, like, what happens if you're on stage with Herbie Hancock and it's time for you to solo and, you know, you're just not really feeling it? And he's like, well, you you better play something. So he's like, you have, to, you have to be functional and just, you know, you have to have something just to get you started, get you going. Uh, and it's the same when you're having to compose on the spot. You're, you have to be able to improvise and come up with a professional-sounding track. And, of course, there are days where you are more inspired than, you know, another time. And, you know, there are definitely tracks where I only had an hour, but I wrote something where I'm like, wow, where did that come from? And then there are days where I have all day to write something, and I'm like, I can't. I mean, I wrote something, but I don't like it, you know. Uh, so it's 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 just a matter of, I think, when, when you're a professional and they ask you for a track, you have to send something that is professional. It may not be, the, you know, the end-all, be-all track, but if it is an actual deliverable, and they can use it, and it's functional, then you were a professional in that regard. You delivered. Do you find yourself composing better consistently early in the morning or late at night, or is that contingent on your deadlines? How does that work? I am absolutely a morning guy. Um, when when I first came out to L.A. and, um, you know, sort of, Interesting phenomenon that happens uh, if you're if you're starting to get work and people are like, oh, well, this person delivers. Then you get hired a lot, and inevitably, I'm always like working on you know two or three projects simultaneously, and I'm like, wow, I am just I don't know how I'm going to do all this. And then one more gig gets lit, thrown on the top, and so then it's total insanity. And um, the only way to handle it is I get up at 3.30 or 4.30 in the morning uh, so that by the time the phone starts ringing um, 10 a.m., noon or whatever, I've already got several hours in the can just of cues finished uh, so that I can handle it all. But I find that I'm most creative when I first wake up um, and I try as much as I can to get up in those wee early morning hours um, however, this week I pulled two all-nighters in order to deliver on the, uh, the television show. So it's, it's like I know that about myself, but sometimes you just can't control it and you've got to be able to just go all through the night if need be. I'm, I'm, it's kind of refreshing to hear someone else in the music industry say they're a morning person. I, I certainly am, but I've always found myself to be sort of the exception and I think that's just because people are out gigging late. How are you going to consistently wake up early if you're not getting back until 2 in the morning? Um, yeah, but, exactly. you know, for me, for my work, too, I don't know. There's something about my routine in the morning. 
uh, I'm consistently better every day. I feel better, et cetera, et cetera. And when you're <laughs> hearing you describe getting up at like 3.30 in the morning, have you ever read this book called Daily Rituals? It's fascinating. It's by this author, Mason Curry. No, I haven't read it, but I'm going to yeah, look it up. Yeah, look it up. It's uh, Obviously, I've read it. I've also gifted it to a few people now because it's so fascinating. But the, the reason why it's relevant is because he compiled all of these habits and rituals by just the best of the best. So like Hemingway and Einstein and um, Mozart. Oh, I've heard about this book. Beethoven, yeah. Picasso, et cetera. I mean, just on and on, like a hundred artists, authors, um, musicians throughout the last century, I'd say. And one of the things that I that is more consistent than not, especially with authors, is this idea of I'm most creative really early in the morning, um, or for those you know three hours or whatever when I'm up, and then the afternoon is kind of like I can't even do it anymore. So. I'm, yeah. I'm, never, I'm not really surprised to hear you say that, but check out the book. It's, it's pretty fascinating. Definitely It's will. also really Definitely funny, will. too. There's this, I think my favorite description is this part about uh, Beethoven. I forget what stage in his career he was, but his ritual was he would wake up and in what the, what was like the bathroom portion of the home he was in was not on the first floor, like the second or third floor. So he would wake up, go in there, and for about 30 minutes kind of, put himself into like a meditative, almost like a trance-like state by pouring these giant buckets of water over himself and would like maybe sing to himself or whatever. It sounded more meditative, but it's hilarious because the people under him every morning had to wake up to being flooded by Mozart pouring water on himself, which was then leaking through the floor. I just thought that was hilarious. If only they knew whose water was spilling onto them. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, it's actually interesting. I mean, I feel like this conversation uh, is being had, like, more and more. Uh, I mean, every composer that I talk to um, that has to produce a large amount of work quickly, and a lot of my screenwriter friends, we have this discussion, you know, what time of day are you most creative? And also, how do you keep your health going? Because the demands on your body are so intense. You know, when you, when I was a kid, you know, taking piano lessons and all this stuff, I never dreamed that music would be such a physically demanding career. But, you know, when you're all constantly sleep-deprived and constantly having to focus mentally at the top of, you know, your game day in and day out, seven days a week, you know, how do you keep that going without, you know, your body failing? And I think having a ritual, having a daily sort of practice, having like a a sort of time of day where you're like, okay, I'm going to get all my creative stuff out of the way and then the rest of the day do more of like the the sort of boring routine stuff, bouncing stems, whatever you want to, you know, think of it as. Uh, but I think that is something that you don't learn about in college, as we were talking about earlier. Yeah, it's crucial. To be consistent in a routine day in, day out that works for you is so important. Absolutely. Crucial. Yeah. Do yeah. you um, do you have time for exercise? I mean, you mentioned the physical toll it takes. Do you are you able to do that? <laughs> well, <clears throat> current or lately, no. Um, my my wife is uh, she's really into the P90X, and uh, there was a while there where I was doing the uh, the DVDs with her, and it is great. Um, 
And when things are not as intense, I definitely like to try. Um, the, you know, what I, I read something recently and it said, you know, if you just, when you take a break, if you go up, a, up or down a flight of stairs, that's enough to keep your heart rate up so that you can go back and concentrate again. Because the, if the idea is, you know, mentally, I forget what it's called, circadian rhythms, I think, mm-hmm. uh, works in 90-minute to 120-minute cycles. And then at that point, you have to take a break. And um, if you go up and down a flight of stairs, walk around the hallway, um, that's enough to sort of reset uh, so you can go in and do some more work. Luckily, the uh, the building where my studio is, um, I'm on the third floor, and uh, if I take a break and go get coffee, I've got to go down three flights of stairs and then come back three flights of stairs. Um, and uh, I drink tons of water throughout the day, and the uh, the water coolers on the other side of the, the the level that I'm on, so I have to walk out of the studio. And I was just reading um, a book uh, published by the Harvard Business Review, and it was saying that, like, every time you need to get a drink of water, get coffee, you should get up and, like, leave and go to where you need to get it. Don't sit at your desk and consume it. Uh, and just by doing that, you'll actually up your production throughout the day. And I totally agree with it. And I was doing it without realizing it. Uh, but just having to do that has kept me going. And then if I can just get off my book and actually find an hour a day to exercise, then I probably would be a lot uh, less stressed because uh, the uh, the hours of sitting, what is it, lactic acid that builds up? I think that's what it is. Yeah. Um, but definitely, man, you get some pretty tense neck muscles and, and shoulder muscles. Um, so it's... Uh, exercises. One thing that I'm failing in, that's my New Year's resolution. I've got to do more of that. <laughs> Walking definitely helps, and, and also the change of scenery, if you, can, if you can do it, which obviously you get when you walk, is really crucial, too. Not, not to beat a dead horse, but one more reference to this book, Daily Rituals. Uh, in terms <laughs> of mixing it up, um, there's a hilarious example of Woody Allen. You know, he primarily works from home and writes and everything like that, and says, he probably takes four to five showers a day because he does that to get a change of scenery and to just sort of feel like rejuvenated. It's like his version of going for a walk almost, you know? <laughs> so I'm not going to, yeah, I don't know that I'll start doing that, but um, <laughs> I think the bottom line is that you're right. You, you need to move around and you just, you really do need to get away from your, your desk or whatever your work, work scene is for a little bit. It's, it's very helpful. So, yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, all right, what what advice would you have for someone who's who's looking to get into film scoring? Now that you've got you're going on eight years worth of or six years now worth of uh, experience out there, what what would you tell somebody who's just starting out? I would say we live now in uh, a world of digital music. And when some, when you want someone to hire you in film music, the first thing they're going to want is a folder of tracks that sound like the music that they want already. Uh, and so it's a little different than, you know, as when I was in a band or trying to get hired to be a performer. You know, they wanted to hear you play, and they'd be like, okay, you're in the band, or they're going to hire you for this gig. Uh, and then you go and you kind of perform and you might change the way you perform based on the sound of the band. It might develop. That's not how film 
works. Um, it's sort of like cart before the horse. Uh, they're like, hey, we're kind of looking for like a Trent Reznor mixed with, you know, Ennio Morricone vibe. Can we hear it? And you're like, well, I haven't written it yet. Oh, well, then you're not the person we want for the job. And you're like, oh, well, I, I, let me put it, you know, let me put it together for you. Uh, so if you're going to enter the industry and you have a certain sound that you envision or uh, a style that you have in your head, start trying to produce those tracks now because whatever you've got out in the world online, uh, whatever files or MP3s you can email somebody, that, those are the kind of gigs you're going to get. Uh, and so um, there's a phrase an older composer said to me, whatever you do leads to more of what you did. Hmm. Meaning that, you know, if you don't like writing stuff that sounds like, you know, commercials, or if you don't like sounding like, I, mean, I don't know, any kind of music, but you keep getting hired to do that, you're going to just keep getting hired to do that same thing. So you've got to produce the kind of music that you want to do so that people can hear that and go, oh, okay, I hear that now, I understand it, I know that you personally can do that, so now I will pay you to do that for me. Interesting. So how often do you have a chance to offer the, the quote, music that you want to do? Is there, is that usually something you're able to do? Uh, it's, it's not that often. Um, you know, last week I was talking at a class and I mentioned that, I'm, you know, I think the modern um, media composer is you have to have a dual career happening um, compositionally. You've got um, on the one hand, you've got you're producing tracks um, that serve a very specific function. You know, trailer music lives in sort of a small world of sounds and styles. Um, you know, rock, pop for indie films. Um, you know, television music and stuff. There's like it has like a certain sound that you can be creative within, but unless you get like a very unique style show. Um, you can't. You can only like go outside the box, but so much. On alongside that, you want to develop like your artistic sound, and that's where I think the world of indie films, where you're working with like a director or producer that's the same person, um, that you have a personal one-on-one relationship with the director or the screenwriter, or whatever. Then they trust you as an artist, and you can talk to them and say, "Hey, we're going to try something a little experimental. Let's let's see how this goes." And those are the ones where I feel like I can really kind of explore my own artistic compositional sound and style, which ends up influencing the other side in a very positive way. But on the other side, there's a lot of pressure and money at stake, and they want to know, okay, this is going to be like what we expect it to be. Um, and so, yeah, like I said, so it's not that often, and I cherish each time it happens, I would say like three or four large projects a year I get to do um, the super artistic stuff and the rest of the time it's, you know, um, I don't know, what would you say? They just want professional craftsmen. That makes sense. Would you say it's a anag- uh, similar analogy could be it's like the difference between a the leader of a band doing his or her own music versus a sideman doing the job that's required of them in a way? Yeah, that's a great way to think about it. And, you know, I guess my my major emphasis would be that there's no, I have no negative feeling towards either. I I quite enjoy both. 
Um, and they both have to be artistic, right? Like if you're, you know, if you get hired to play piano for Wayne Shorter, are you going to be like, well, I never get to do my music when I'm playing with Wayne. It's like, come on, you're still playing with Wayne Shorter. Oh, my goodness, right. you know? Uh, so neither are bad, uh, but I think you kind of just wear a different hat. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that says a lot about you as a as, as a professional now, too, your willingness to embrace both sides. It's kind of speaks for itself as to why you've been able to do the work you've been able to do. I think I have two more questions for you, and I, I appreciate your time because um, I know you're probably doing a lot, even though it is the holidays here. What are you most excited about for 2017? I am... Most excited about uh, this new TV show that is um, premiering in the spring, it's, uh, the Andy Max show from um, Terry Minsky. She uh, she was the creator of Lizzie McGuire, which was a, a huge hit for Disney. Uh, so I'm really excited because all the people in the show have been really wonderful to work with. She's really creative, a uh, great leader. Um, and then I have a... Um, two feature films I'm going to be scoring with uh, director directors that are close friends of mine. Um, one of them is this uh, sci-fi action film uh, by director uh, Dylan Narang, um, and it kind of revolves around a, um, a young guy who creates a sound device that can capture vibrations that are so infinitely small um, that he can hear conversations that happened in the past so he can go into a room and he uses this machine and he gets like the, uh, the sort of audio um, DNA of your voice he can find things that are still echoing in a room that you said days earlier um, just sort of a fascinating uh, concept and uh, the palette for the the film right now is supposed to be kind of like a like film noir, jazz, mixed with, you know, modern sci-fi. Uh, so it's uh, the first project I've had in a while where I get, I'll get to use some of my jazz um, chops and hire some um, really incredible jazz player friends of mine on it. So that's going to be one of those projects that will be very unique and artistically satisfying. It's going to be a lot of fun. Are you able to tell us the name of the movie or is that not? Currently it's titled Soundwave. Soundwave. Soundwave, yep. Could could change, but right now it's Soundwave. Got it. And did you say there was another feature film for next year? Or Yeah, there's another one um, by uh, Travis Malloy. Um, and I, I he's a screenwriter buddy of mine. He's known for writing uh, Pandorum, which is sort of a cult hit in the sci-fi world. Uh, it was a film starring Dennis Quaid and, and Ben Foster. Uh, I scored another sci-fi film with it this year, and um, he's got some really exciting projects cooking, um, and he's got two or three projects, and we just don't know which one's going to hit first, so I can't speak to the kind of specific project that will happen next. I just know there will be one with him, and the last one I did was so fun. I'm sure this one's going to be amazing, but both... Travis and Dylan have been like some of my favorite collaborators, uh, so I'm really looking forward to a chance to get to be artistic with everything. Sounds great. And last question then. So I love to ask this of everybody. Who who are you listening to now that has you really excited? 
in terms of artists on your your playlist? Artists on my playlist. It sure is sort of an infinitely changing <laughs> list. Yeah, um, mine too. Yeah, you know it's uh, hmm. Well, it's weird because there are a lot, a lot of film composers that I listen to uh, just for you know sort of study of the craft, not necessarily for you know artistic enjoyment. I say like artistically lately, I've been listening to Beck. Um, that last album that he won a Grammy for. Um, I guess I'm behind the times, but I've just been really, really loving it. And uh, jazz-wise, um, uh, Gary Thomas's music has been back in my uh, rotation lately. Um, he's got about 12 or 15 amazing albums, mostly from the 90s. And uh, if you're a jazz listener, I highly recommend uh, an album of his called Sound on Sorted Streets. Sound on Sorted Streets? Yeah, Sorted, S-O-R-D-I-D. Sound on Sorted Streets. Yeah, incredible. Uh, Saxophone, uh, guitar, organ, and drums. Got it. I'll have to check it out. I appreciate the recommendation. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, Jacob, what a great conversation. I really appreciate your time today, and it has been really fascinating listening to hear you describe your work, how you do it, how you got there, what you're going to be doing. Um, I think it'll be exciting to see where things go. And uh, I will certainly post a link to your website on the show notes for this episode. People should check it out. It's gorgeously simple design. People can see the trailers you've done. And, um, I, again, I can't thank you enough for your time. Thanks for having me. It's been wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Have a happy New Year. You too. All right. Take care. Take care.